it's very, very easy to say, okay, I will cut this person out of my life to save myself a little bit of grief. But usually if we're talking about people who are maybe like very bought into these conspiracies who are like pretty deep in it, right? The best thing you can do is to let them know that you're going to be there no matter what. And that sort of like gives them a little bit of space and allows them to backtrack gracefully if they choose to do that. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to talk about the state of the economy in light of the April jobs report and just our take on what's going on and what our expectations should be right now about the economy. Then we'll share our conversation with Jane Litvinenko, BuzzFeed's senior reporter on disinformation. I'm a big fan of her Twitter feed, especially, and all of her work. She talks to us about misinformation and her advice for navigating digital media. I love this conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. And outside of politics, we're discussing what we perceived this year as a real shift, a positive one, in recognizing the complexity around Mother's Day. So stick around. You won't want to miss that discussion. Before we start, did you know that you can listen to Pantsuit Politics on Spotify? You can follow us there and never miss an episode if that's the app you're starting to live in in your day-to-day. You can also ask Alexa to play the latest episode of Pantsuit Politics. I know a lot of you listen as you're folding laundry doing other household tasks. Alexa, it's a real helpmate. You can ask her to play Pantsuit Politics, so you can listen then as well. As we get into this conversation about the economy, it is necessarily a conversation about COVID-19. And we Mm want to just take a second to acknowledge that there were very big reactions to Friday's episode that covered a wide spectrum of feeling. We heard from so many people that it was our best episode ever. We heard from quite a few people who did not enjoy it and challenged where we were coming from. And we got a lot of in-between that was very thoughtful and interesting. And we've spent a lot of time thinking about those comments. We covered some of our reactions to them briefly on Patreon last night. But Sarah, we thought we'd just take just a second here and react to your reactions. Yes, it's an incredibly complex topic. And I think the first thing I'd say is like, we definitely did not cover everything we want to cover. So many people pointed out that there's this real complexity when it comes to kids and COVID and them not being vaccinated. We have two not one, but two episodes coming up where we're going to talk about that. Um, talk to some experts re- surrounding particularly kids and vaccines. And it, we heard a lot of pushback when we were talking about schools reopening and mistakes made there. And I think what I just want to make sure and say is, one, I thought the reaction was overwhelmingly positive. And I don't mean just positive and you like the episode, but just so thoughtful People really engaging in some self-examination and sort of awareness of where they saw themselves in the episode, where they didn't see themselves in the episode. Why? I just I was so incredibly impressed. But there was a lot of 
you know, if you're criticizing something about masks, that means you think there should be no mask or you think that the states that have pulled back the mask mandate have done everything correctly. Or if you have criticisms about schools were the way schools were reopened, you think schools should be all the way opened or I mean, and I think that I would just encourage everyone to remember, like it was the best comment we received from as a listener that was like, I'm just trying to remind myself it's one episode in a moment in time. And that's what it was. You know, I think that there's been a lot of shift in the science and the public health understanding of COVID as usual. And Eptu Fetchy is doing some of the best writing about that. I'd highly recommend an article she just wrote for The New York Times about about how we now understand that COVID is aerosolized and what that means and how we need to focus more on ventilation and filtration and letting people go outside now that the science has shifted. Because I think one of the best points she makes, and I think it showed up so much in the pushback from this episode, is when we establish a status quo. And what I would add is when that status quo is established during a moment of really intense fear and trauma, we keep raising the evidentiary standard to sort of undo that status quo. And that's what I was really trying to articulate in that conversation is that, you know, like I said, it went from sort of harm reduction to risk elimination. And I think we just need to be aware of that, not because I'm mad at anybody or I think somebody's doing it wrong. I mean, there are some people I'm mad at, but because I always want us to be growing and becoming more thoughtful. And I see some of this approach really harming people and increasing their anxiety and suffering. And so I just, I think that the conversation was hard and uncomfortable for us and, you know, but it was worth it. I think the response overwhelming me showed me that it was worth it, that we all, I hope, grew a little bit developed a little more empathy, developed a little more understanding. That's always our goal here at Pansy Politics. And my goal as it relates to COVID right now is I just want people to get vaccinated. I want to ask every probing question I can about what it takes to get more people vaccinated, how we can shift our problem solving to that problem, you know, how we can bring all of our best thinking and resources to building trust with people who are willing to consider getting vaccinated, but are not yet persuaded that it's time for them to do so. That's different. I hear you all on a category of people who have from the beginning Mm -hmm. said COVID isn't real, you're dumb for wearing a mask, and you're dumb for getting vaccinated. That's not who I'm talking about. I recognize that we've got a a hardened population in America. We probably always have had around some issues and always will have around others. But right now we have a hardened population around COVID-19, and I am not trying to cater to that population. But I do see still a lot of opportunity among people who are open to it, who think COVID is real, who have some questions about the vaccine. And I want to get those questions answered and set a positive example and appeal to them in every way I possibly can. Because I truly believe that absent a lot more people getting vaccinated, we probably are looking at a, a much less comfortable and and maybe even frightening future in terms of variants and where we go from here. And that kind of leads us into the jobs report. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
we are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. received an April jobs report. We get these every month. And the reason this one made so much news is because it was about a quarter of what was projected in terms of the number of jobs added to the economy. We added jobs to the economy, over 250,000 of them, but it was at a much lower rate than had been forecasted and hoped. And Sarah, what has bugged me in the coverage of this jobs report Beyond just saying, like, looking at data month by month is usually too incomplete of a picture. You, sh- I, I think mm-hmm. you should look at data quarterly, not monthly, at the least, you know, to get a meaningful trajectory. But what has really bugged me is I felt we did good conversation around the recession in understanding that this is not a typical recession. So we have an atypical experience of economic slowdown. And so we need to attack that problem differently than we've attacked past recessions. And I saw a lot of that commentary and discussion and heard it from policymakers. And now we get this one jobs report. And I feel like suddenly we are saying, well, we had an unusual problem that we had to attack in unusual ways. But now we want to measure the success of that under completely typical metrics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it speaks to the weaknesses inside our forecasting, the weaknesses inside our models, and weaknesses because the models are not perfect in the best, most normal of circumstances. And so expecting them to reflect perfectly very extraordinary circumstances seems like a mistake to me. 
Well, and it also leads to a lot of analysis that tries to reduce complex human considerations other than money to dollars and cents transactional Mm -hmm. conclusions. So when you hear people saying, for example, well, the unemployment insurance extension is paying people to stay home now, and that's why we don't have enough people in the workforce, perhaps that's true for some people, but I cannot imagine that that's the entirety of what's causing that tightness in the labor market. I think about just time of year. If you are a parent, Mm -hmm. summer is always challenging if you're in a school district that takes most of the summer off and you've had a weird school year anyway and your options for caregiving during the summer are always limited, but especially limited this year. And you've got kids who say things like, "My, you know, my 10-year-old, I'm having a hard time convincing her to do much of anything this summer because she's tired of wearing a mask and she doesn't Mm want to go sit in a classroom somewhere and wear a mask. She doesn't want to be at summer camp with a mask on and I don't blame her. And so, you know, the options for the summer are limited. I totally understand people thinking I'm going to get back in the workforce in the fall. You know, hopefully school's back to normal and I have some more reliable supports in my life for getting me into a job. Yeah, it's a simple number to measure a very complex calculus in an individual's life. And I think if we're describing this as a she session, which I think is dumb, but let's just go with it because the recession has impacted primarily women. Who thought that women would be rolling back into the workforce, women who left because of child care issues, when half the child care places are still shut down and it's about to be summer? Like who thought who thought that that was going to be part of it? But that's because this metric is such a, like you said, like a transactional prism through which people will look through that, of course, they missed the mark. I mean, to me, it's like there's not something surprising. Now, I will have to say this to the unemployment calculus. I've had to really watch myself. I feel myself having a very partisan and very damaging reaction when this comes up in my everyday life. And let let me explain what I mean. You know, I had a friend that basically said, well, people don't want to work because they're getting more with unemployment. And I felt every cell in my body want to just react. Like, I felt so defensive. I felt like if I admit even a sliver of this is true, then I'm admitting that everything the Democrats fought for as far as extension of unemployment is wrong, that we screwed it up. Like I could just feel that sort of old partisan posturing that I really try to keep in check. One, because it's, you know, if you if you tell someone who is watching this particular unemployment issue play out in their community that the sky is green, not blue, that people aren't struggling to fill these spots because of unemployment insurance, then I'm shutting down the conversation and they're, and I'm reinforcing a lot of stereotypes and it's going to be bad. Because the truth is, like, there, I have talked to people in my community who are trying to hire and who have people saying, I'll be back in a few weeks when, the go- when my funding from the government runs out. Like, I'll come back when, I've, when my checks are done. So I can't argue with that. I'm not, and I shouldn't want to and I shouldn't have to. And I, you know... That's just going to shut the conversation down and they're not going to believe anything I say because I'm refusing to acknowledge the reality that that is a component of why people are not looking for jobs. And so I'm really trying to ha- to watch myself to say, like, I think the stability of unemployment is definitely playing a role in why people are not returning to the labor market. Like, no doubt, of course, that that is a component. But just like with everything with COVID, it's not the only 
thing that's happening. There's never just one thing that's going on in a country of 300 million people. And I think childcare, I think that especially when you're looking at when these numbers came down on April 12th, that we weren't hearing the hopeful messages that we're currently hearing about summer, that people were still really scared of the disease. If you're talking about where we're seeing the real drop off in these numbers as far as um, in low income jobs in the retail sector and some other areas, you're talking about communities that were really impacted by COVID, who lost family members, who have some really um, difficult economic calculations to make um, regarding their own health. And I just think like there's a part of me that's that I wish in some of these conversations I'd said, it's just not an experience I understand. I don't understand what it's like to be a low-income worker in America. I don't understand what it's like to work, be in a community that was at really high risk and that probably lost many community members due to COVID. And so I'm trying to give a lot of grace and not make it about people just want to cash checks and stay home. And to add in some complexity instead of double down on a partisanship that often just makes it really simplistic and really a really defensive conversation. Well, especially if you're talking about people who have experienced real economic precarity throughout the pandemic, Mm -hmm. you have choices about child care evaporating because some of those child care centers aren't closed because of COVID concerns. They closed. They closed. could not make it through the pandemic. And in places where you already had too few child care options, mm-hmm. you have even fewer now. And so so that's one issue. You have people staring down eviction moratoriums expiring. Yep. And so stabilization of housing is really important. And look, if you're an employer stabilization of housing is really important. You are not going to have a reliable workforce if people are in danger of losing their homes. And so, you know, I think all policymaking is about prioritization and about what you're willing to bet on. And when the unemployment insurance benefits were extended, we did not know how successful the vaccine rollout was going to be. We did not know that vaccine supply would soon eclipse vaccine demand. So in one sense, just the purest public health calculation, it was the right thing to do, I think. And we were also betting on trying to help people maintain their housing, pay their bills, not get so behind that things just spiraled and spiraled. Imagine what would happen to the workforce if we hadn't given people this temporary support. If your argument is that it went on too long, like we can debate that all day. I think it was right to take the risk of it going on too long versus having it not go long enough because it's not just that we're not adding jobs as fast as people would like to see it. It's all those other ramifications of people getting behind financially that would hurt the job market far into the future if we had allowed them all to crash down at one time. Well, and I just think why I get so defensive in these conversations is the undercurrent is... People should work. People should want to work no matter how shitty the job is. Because there was a big exploration, expansion of understanding on the higher income work scale that people don't actually want to work nine to five and they don't actually want to show up at a job and have a long, terrible commute. And that the flexibility from working from home was a real gift to people on the upper income scale. And so but it feels like when we shift to lower income jobs, all of a sudden it's like, how dare you demand flexibility? How dare you demand income stability? How dare you want something better for yourself? Or you should just take what you can get. 
it makes me mad. And I think I react to that in the conversations, too, because that's the undercurrent is like they're cashing those government checks because they're lazy. When these are this is not coming from people who are out there waking up at 4.30 a.m. to take a bus to Burger King. Right. Like and so they're it's coming from people who love working from home and who who demand flexibility. And I think that's like that's what upsets me, too. And I have to watch my emotional reaction to that. Because it just, when we get into issues of class, which is just dripping from every part of this conversation surrounding the jobs report, there are these real stereotypes that are prolific throughout America, and they make me so mad. Well, and I can imagine that some people are waiting to see kind of how things shake out before they get into a new job. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know that we are even close to finished sorting out what the demand for hospitality services will be post-COVID mm-hmm. or what the restaurant industry looks like or the travel industry. If I were thinking of starting a business today, I would be waiting several months because I just don't know where the economy is is leading um, in terms of what people actually want when they have more choices available that feel safe. And so it feels unfair to me, to your point, Sarah, to ask people on the lower end of the economic spectrum to rush that process faster than people Mm. on the higher end of the economic spectrum. And we don't have everyone vaccinated yet. We particularly don't have everyone vaccinated yet in some of the communities that have been most affected by the economic fallout of the pandemic. And so we just are going to have to give this a little bit more time, I think. And I'm glad that the government this time erred on the side of sticking with people and helping them through this instead of letting people flounder on their own. But we're going to get, you know, some data about what happens when those benefits get cut off because we're seeing a number of Republican governors pulling back support received through federal programs in their states to try to boost the employment numbers. I'm worried about what that's going to mean for families in those states. So before we share our conversation with Jane, we wanted to have a moment of hope from Krista, who shared this with us on Instagram. She said, Recently, I was discouraged reading about a program in Birmingham started in 2019 to pardon misdemeanor marijuana charges that had only pardoned nine people so far because they'd made the process too difficult. I was proud to see that they've acknowledged what they tried wasn't working. I have mixed feelings on the legalization of marijuana, but honestly, what do I not have mixed feelings about as a moderate? But this feels like progress to me. And I thought that was lovely. I think I love a moment of hope that's like they haven't gotten it right yet, but they admitted it wasn't working and they're trying to improve it. I think sometimes that's the best we can ask for. Absolutely. And we will link the article that Krista mentions here. And I think if you're on the fence about the legalization of marijuana, understanding what happens when you start to pardon misdemeanor marijuana convictions, again, to labor force participation, to the overall economic picture, and to the civil rights picture in this country, it is a very big deal. It is a very significant way that we can have I think a lot of really positive outcomes across multiple sectors. And so I'm I'm thrilled to see this is happening in Birmingham. Next up, we're going to talk with Jane Litvinenko about what she called the Venn diagram of hell, which is my favorite phrase from this interview <laughs> of navigating misinformation online. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. 
They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive & Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive & Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. I find myself going to your Twitter feed anytime something feels weird to me. Because I feel like you usually have a good explanation for why it feels weird or just a just a good reminder that following that instinct that something feels weird is really mm. important. So can you just start by telling us what it is that you do with BuzzFeed for people who aren't familiar with your work and how you cover disinformation? Yeah, I mean, I tweet about things that feel weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, there's more to my job than that. So for the last... Uh, 
four and a half years or so, I've been focusing on investigating, debunking, uncovering online disinformation. So this can mean anything from debunking hoaxes in the middle of a breaking news situation, like a crisis, an election, an attack, a weather event, to investigating how disinformation networks come together online and sort of how they work across different platforms to try to manipulate people's behavior. And important thing to clarify is that when I mean disinformation networks, I don't necessarily mean people who post things that are fake on the internet. I also mean uh, accounts, pages, um, websites that may take something that is factually true, but omit facts or decontextualize it to the point where it becomes warped. Mm. So when we talk about disinformation, it's sort of this like large ecosystem that we focus on and not necessarily this is accurate or this is not accurate. That's really important. I think that language to describe how something goes through a process on the Internet where it becomes warped. And I think that process happens online and offline. I mean, I think that happens in conversations. I mean, we all played the game of telephone a long time ago. For our listeners, they're dealing with that a lot in their personal conversations, their personal interactions. And I know that you take this macro you as a reporter, and you're really trying to debunk it. But I'm wondering what you tell people, because I'm assuming you get this question a lot. But what if my family member is fully vested in this disinformation and no amount of debunking is going to get them out of it? You know, it's really interesting. Before the year 2020, I got a lot of questions along the lines of how do we know that disinformation has an impact on the real world? Mm. Um, that's you know, sweet. How do we that's know sweet when we things? were worried about that. <laughs> yeah. And then 2020 hit and it became this global interconnected boundary crossing issue that very clearly has an impact on the mm-hmm. real world. And now the question becomes, how do I deal with it in my day-to-day life now that I see the impact? And unfortunately, there's no really hard and fast rules, especially Mm -hmm. if you have a family member or a friend who's maybe very committed to a conspiracy that they've come across online or to a community around that conspiracy that they've built online. And one of the best things to do is practice patience in that Mm. situation. It's very, very easy to say, okay, I will cut this person out of my life to save myself a little bit of grief. But usually if we're talking about people who are maybe like very bought into these conspiracies who are like pretty deep in it, right? The best thing you can do is to let them know that you're going to be there no matter what. Mm. Because if one day they sort of wake up and decide, actually, I don't really know what I'm doing here. This is not the situation that I want to be in. They need to have a support network that they can still rely on. That's part of sort of their old life or their previous life. And that's also why it's incredibly important to not shame people, even if Mm. it's a one-off. Because that feeling of shame doesn't give people a lot of room to backtrack their talking about. 
So instead, practice um, using open-ended questions, um, sort of asking like, okay, where did you find this? And you have evidence that um, the thing that they sent you is false. Say, hey, you were talking to me about this the other day. I came across it. What do you think? You know, and that sort of uh, allows, like gives them a little bit of space and allows them to backtrack gracefully if they choose to do that. Man, I don't know. That does sound like macro advice for a society as well as for <laughs> I feel like a lot of what you just said would work for us culturally as well. Well, thinking about a specific example that we know our listeners are struggling with, you've written quite a bit about the January 6th insurrection and everything that happened leading up to it. I was reading a recent piece of yours about uh, Facebook and an internal memo. So I would love for you to give us your kind of macro disinformation view on how we got to January 6th and how the story of January 6th seems to be rewritten daily based on different interests swirling around it. Yeah, I mean, how we got here is an incredibly difficult question because there's really no one easy answer. But I think one of the most important things to understand with disinformation is that very frequently it starts small and sort of builds on itself. It's almost like a game of one-upmanship. And when you think about when the problem of disinformation in North America, in particular in the U.S., first sort of came up, it was in the context of things that are particularly like extremely fake, right? Like things that were genuinely, truly like some teen sitting in Macedonia making up a headline, right? Like totally out of left field. But I think as companies, social media companies realized that that was easy to sift out, um, the way that disinformation was presented to large audiences changed. So rather than be um, absolutely fake, sort of like four clicks type of approach, we saw a lot of testing and a lot of false and hyperpartisan information that was clearly created for political means. It really sort of looked at, okay, what is the conversation right now? And how can I divert attention from that conversation? That is like a very insidious tactic that works mm. not just in the US, but globally. You look a lot at Russian disinformation and their approach to how they target audiences. And it's not through pure fakes. It's through embedding themselves into communities and then starting extremely divisive conversations in those communities and sort of watching them fall apart, right? Uh, watching them target one another over this one divisive issue rather than have a conversation that they wanted to have in the first place, which was about something completely different. And so it's through that process that between 2015 and 2019, it grew and it grew and it grew. And in 2020, with the pandemic, it really brought all of the different strands of false information and disinformation that we have together. So this was political disinformation, this was health disinformation, and this was like tech-based disinformation of, you know, a little bit of tech fear. It allowed for all of these narratives that were happening separately to essentially become the center of this Venn diagram from hell. Um, to, 
<laughs> that's the tagline for this episode and how I feel every day sometimes. Yeah, the Venn diagram. The totally. Venn diagram from hell. Perfect. <laughs> um, and with it, we saw a huge growth of audiences. You know, it's really tricky to say how we got here specifically, but it is a combination of all of those factors. In addition to the fact that we all stayed home for the first like six months of 2020 with nothing to do but sit online and try to find new communities. And so what are you learning about the way that what happened on January 6th is being repackaged and sold in kind of the same way? Well, you know, um, I think what we're learning is that even the most drastic of events is not going to stop this disinformation cycle. We already knew that after Charlottesville, um, which was a very painful um, and tragic event. And I think that was really reinforced during January 6th. Uh, it's really difficult to know where the information ecosystem will go from here because some of the social media companies sort of at least in the moment, said, oh, no, you know, what did we do? How did we get here? They banned Donald Trump from their platforms. They sort of, at least at the time, felt like they had this moment of reckoning almost. But the disinformation hasn't stopped. And the tactics that I just described haven't stopped either. Most of the people who spread disinformation, these like, super super disinformation super spreaders as i've heard researchers call them <laughs> they're still online they're still using these same tactics so it's kind of difficult to be optimistic about where this will go because it just continues well i don't usually play the role of optimist in the face of conversations about misinformation but what does feel different to me and just tell me if i'm being way naive here feels like in 2016 when we talk about the divisiveness inside the groups and and some of the other disinformation strategies, we're able to succeed in part because we weren't paying attention to them and we weren't taking them seriously. And you're talking about that shift in 2020 when everybody was like, well, I guess we're not debating whether they're going to impact us anymore. I mean, do you feel a shift now that it's something that people take seriously and pay attention to? I mean, we were so concerned about the impact on the 2020 election, but they were able to, you know, particularly keep foreign actors out of our systems. And, you know, I know we have the other issue seems very dismissive, and I'm not trying to be. But you know what I mean? Like, it does feel different in that it is now something most Americans, I think, are at least loosely aware of. Definitely that journalists and government officials and law enforcement is paying attention to. Does that give you, is there literally any reason to be hopeful is basically the question I'm asking you. (laughs) Just little, just something tiny, Jane, anything. (laughs) All right. I will give you one crumb of optimism. Thank you. See, just a crumb. That's fine. (laughs) The one crumb of optimism is that the issue of disinformation before the U.S. woke up to it was very well known worldwide. A lot of different countries were sounding the alarm. Mm. They were sounding the alarm on state-sponsored disinformation. They were sounding the alarm on domestic disinformation. They understood the power that this networked environment has. And again, it's not that we never had disinformation before Mm -hmm. the internet. It's just that 
the tech companies have an outsized impact on speech because of the speed with which um, speech spreads on them. And many countries um, sort of didn't really have a lot of um, ways to address it because these companies themselves sort of turned a blind eye. Now the companies can no longer claim ignorance. That's more than a crumb. That is more than a crumb. It's, it. well, the companies can no longer claim ignorance and we can definitely keep them accountable, particularly in the U.S. But that doesn't mean that they've accepted responsibility to the level that the responsibility um, should be accepted. Uh And Uh it, 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 it really falls a lot to U.S. lawmakers to make good, smart policy decisions because those decisions will have an impact on uh, the world, right? Like when we look at Facebook's user base, what is it, 2 billion people now? Am I making her up or, (laughs) Um, right? Um, So so it's good that the U.S. has finally woken up to the problem. It's good that the U.S. can't claim ignorance and is looking at ways to address the issue. We should be very cautiously optimistic because the way that the issue will be addressed um, is going to have a huge, huge impact across the world. Well, let me give you an opportunity to go in the completely opposite direction. What's the thing people are waving red flags about now that we're not paying enough attention to? Yeah, I mean, um, that's a really good question. I think my personal frustration with a lot of this conversation is how U.S. centric it has become Mm. Um, because once the U.S. decides that it cares about something, it really like it really becomes a U.S. problem. And that is really, really difficult, particularly in countries where English is not the primary language, in countries where authoritarian leaders have continued to use this power of Facebook to turn it against activists, journalists and dissidents. And as the conversation has become so focused on the U.S., these issues in other places feel like they have fallen to the wayside a little bit, and we can't forget that. Hmm. I recall a really helpful thread from you on Twitter about the Tom Cruise deepfakes on TikTok, which sprang to mind for me when you said how U.S.-centric it has become, because I, I do see us like obsessing among ourselves about uh, these techniques. And you pointed out in that thread, which kind of blew my mind, that deepfakes are mostly used to harass women online. Can you talk about where you see that showing up and other applications around the world that U.S. citizens ought to be more concerned about? Yeah. So I think uh, first, let's define what a deepfake is. A deepfake is a machine learning algorithm that was created to make a video or to manipulate a video, usually a person within that video, to make it look like somebody did something that they did not say or do. The Tom Cruise deepfakes are a really great example of that. Um, It ended up being a Tom Cruise impersonator. That was my question, and I was embarrassed to ask it, and I'm glad that you were addressing it, and I know that's a very American-centric reaction, but I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. Um, So it was an impersonator, and it was created by an artist who's known for his extraordinary 
uh, video um, editing skills. And it took him months, if I remember correctly. And what that really tells us is that there's a lot of factors that went into making that video incredibly, incredibly realistic. So realistic, it's indistinguishable because all of those different things had to have combined. There had to have been an impersonator who knows the mannerisms enough to mimic Tom Cruise. There has to have been enough photo and video footage of Tom Cruise to uh, for the machine learning algorithm to work. And there has to have been a professional who understood the best way to create these deep fakes and have the time to invest in them. Um, but uh, and, and so as much as we have these conversations about deep fakes, it's really important to have that reality check um, because we really want to remember how labor intensive deep fakes are. And in terms of where deep fakes are used, the big fear is that there's going to be one giant deep fake of a politician sort of declaring nuclear war or what have you, and we will not know that it's fake in time to stop it. You know, that's like the worst case scenario, right? And the worst case scenario is never what we anticipate it to be. So now that we've anticipated that, everybody, we're safe. We're safe. We're good. But in reality, the way that deep fakes are used are to harass women to, without their consent, put their faces on nude bodies or mm. insert them into pornography, and very frequently without knowledge, without their own knowledge, right? Um, and this is something that is incredibly um, widespread. Sensity, a company that tracks these things pretty closely, just put out a report showing that um, the amount of deep fakes, particularly targeted at women, has um, grown hugely this year. Um, but that's really, you know, it 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 it's really um, a case where the things that we fear and how reality is playing out are completely disconnected. Man, I think that's the other headline for this episode is the way we anticipate and the way they play out are completely disconnected. I think that's just a perfect center point to keep every conversation about misinformation focused on. So what would you suggest to listeners as we um, go forward trying to be better online participants? I don't even know what we are online anymore. I can't even think of the noun that describes how we interact with the internet. But as we're all out there interacting with the internet, what are the things that we ought to keep in mind? As we reluctantly log on to Twitter as the last bastion <laughs> of our human connection. As right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, I mean, look, in terms of the big picture, it's really the responsibility falls on lawmakers and on the tech giants. But mm. that doesn't mean that individually there's a lack of thing we, things we can do. My consistent advice has been to be mindful of the online ecosystem that you build for yourself. Mm. Uh, very frequently, we sort of are flippant about who we give a platform to online or how we approach community building online. And that's the one thing that's within our power to change. So if you did share something that was false, your immediate reaction should be to remove it and to apologize because you're now responsible to your online community and you've passed it on. Likewise, if you have people in your life who don't are not necessarily 
as well versed in these issues as you are, take the time to educate them. You know, once I explained to my grandma what an algorithm is and how it works, she became much more suspicious of Facebook than she was. <laughs> Which is important, right? Because out here trying to make our grandma suspicious. This is the goal. <laughs> yes, that's right. Suspicious of the right things. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. And then from there, you know, um, do your basic checks before you amplify something, especially if it's going viral. So um, learn how to do a reverse image search, even if it's on your phone make it a reflex to check somebody's profile to see when it was created or if they're reliable. If you're coming across something on a website that you haven't really interacted with before, just check to make sure that it's a real website and not not one of those, you know, imitation news websites. So just be really mindful of how you interact with the online world, which I know feels like a little bit of a cop-out answer, but individually, Aside from emailing your lawmakers and asking them to take action when action is needed, that's the best thing that you can do. You were talking about being mindful of the kind of ecosystem we create for ourselves online. And I just would love to ask you, as someone who lives in this disinformation world and is trying to track down where things are coming from and how it's going, is is your job scary? Like, how does it feel when you're diving into these topics? It's sometimes scary. You know, um, there are times when they're scarier than others. Um, there's a, like a few different flavors of scary, you know, one is like the online harassment that's targeted at reporters in this field is unreal. I'm very lucky to have escaped most of it recently, but many colleagues have had to secure their life in a way that seems just awful and mm. terrible and problematic because of the online harassment that they receive. And the other part is, you look at a lot of these scary memes, images, threats, profiles, things that people say, and sometimes in the back of your head, you frequently wonder, you know, how serious are they? Is this something that's mm-hmm. immune to them? Or is this something that they've um, become personally ingrained with? And the tricky thing is that, you know, sometimes you sort of perceive that you can see the arc of how bad things can get. Of course, we can't, we can't tell the future <laughs> by, by any means, but you sort of game out the worst possible scenario in your head. And that can get really unsettling. But mm-hmm. on the plus side, because of how specific this field is, um, it's also incredibly supportive. You know, many reporters uh, say that they're extremely competitive, uh, which of course is true. And I'm extremely competitive with other people in this field. But I also know that even if um, I have colleagues who work at other publications, I can comfortably turn to them when something gets really bad and Mm -hmm. they support me and I will support them. So it's a weird one. You know, it's a, it's definitely a weird subject to focus on. It's a weird field to be in can get really scary sometimes, but sometimes it's all right. Well, thank you for doing that work. Thank you for persisting when it's scary. And I'm glad you have a community that supports you. And we certainly appreciate your work here at Pansy Politics. Thank you for for having me. I think these having these conversations is really, really important. Thank you so much, Jane. Do you want to tell us where people can find you? 
Oh, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter, JaneLYTV. Um, you can find my email there if you want to send me a tip of something that you see. Um, my DMs are open there as well. Um, and I write for BuzzFeedNews.com, the website. So you can find uh, me and my colleagues um, out on that corner of the internet. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, I was so encouraged over the weekend and really over the past few weeks that we have finally really shifted the way we talk and think about Mother's Day. It's not perfect, but there were very few places from like personal Facebook posts to company emails. We shared um, Jenny's ice cream email on our Instagram and the way you could opt out of Mother's Day messages to sort of commercials and just an acknowledgement that Mother's Day is complex because our relationships with our with our mothers and as mothers contains a lot of heartbreak and a lot of trauma and a lot of suffering. And so, you know, painting it as just cards and flowers and loves and kisses really misses the mark and can and can make people suffering worse. And I thought that is something that I am, you know, so, so happy about. And I feel like it's really taken off in the last few years and particularly this year, maybe because of COVID, we really have leaned into this idea of it's not a simple story. And so let's just acknowledge that it doesn't take it away from anybody who's really celebrating, but it allows space for those for whom this holiday is more complex. That last thing you said to me was really key. Because this is an example I think we could apply to so many different areas. Acknowledging that there are multiple experiences out there doesn't take anything away from my experience of it. You know, I'm a mom in a family with two kids in a middle-class household. Like, there are so many things about my life that are really wonderful and easy. And nothing about people saying Mother's Day is hard or hurtful or something that I don't want thrown in my face at every turn takes anything away from my ability to enjoy the holiday with my family here. And that is a blueprint, I think, that we need in so many different spaces. Yeah, my friend Jessica sent me an email and said, like, thank you for, you know, acknowledging the complexity. And I was like, up next July 4th, we can do it, America. Like, if we can do it around Mother's Day, if we can find space for empathy for each other and difficult histories and, you know, just... Letting go of the easy peasy, often very corporate messages. I loved the Instagram commenter was like, maybe we could just stop using holidays to sell things. (laughs) That's an idea. Well, then we can apply it to bigger holidays, to like more national holidays. I guess it's not a bigger holiday, but more national holidays where there is complex history, where there is a lot to hold and there's, there's tension and there's not easy heroes to lift up, but there's some human behavior that shouldn't be lifted up, you know, because I think that's true for mothers. Not every mother deserves to be celebrated. Let's just, you know, let's just put that out there. Some mothers were abusive or neglectful. And so we've just been able to hold that and say, that doesn't mean we don't celebrate. That doesn't mean we don't find a moment for gratitude or for recognition or for just celebration. It's just that we hold it alongside the fact that there is trauma and there is abuse and there is sadness and heartbreak. And I think we should listen, we could do that other places, America. I believe in us. Yeah. And I don't even begrudge mentioning holidays and marketing messages. I especially think about small businesses and what a big Mm -hmm. deal the holidays are for many of those businesses is an opportunity to reach out to their customers where sometimes there's a real service associated with reaching out to customers. Um, So I'm not even upset about any of that. But doing it with that note of, hey, some of you desperately want to be mothers, and that hasn't been a reality for you, and that hurts, and we, we see it. And some of you have, have buried your children, and that is, 
that is a tragedy and it hurts. Mm-hmm. And we see that just being able to note that this isn't one thing for everybody and, and to do it simply, plainly, without judgment or ranking of who should feel yeah. what, when, that to me is a, a triumph in a culture that doesn't do that very well in so many areas. I'm, I, am, I am encouraged by just being able to say, if, if you celebrate, we are here to celebrate with you. If you grieve, we're here to grieve with you. If you just want to mm-hmm. ignore this, then hit snooze on this message and we'll move on. Yeah. It's not like we don't have the technology to let people opt out of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like we don't have ways to adapt and to accommodate all the ways that a country of 300 million people are different, right? Like, I just, we can do this. We have the ability because of the technology that often makes our lives much more complicated. It can allow a path forward in this multicultural democracy that we're trying to build where people can go at their own pace, because that's where America screws up a lot. We want everybody going at the same pace. It's, you know, it's reflected in our conversation about the jobs report, right? We don't allow for, you know, we had a marathon, a half marathon that goes by my house, and it came, it's called the Iron Mom. It happens every time, or it happens every year during Mother's Day. And I love the pace setters. And I love that I feel so, ex- I don't even know why I'm tearing up. But like, I love it when the people come by very first and I am just as excited for them as I am for the relay people in the middle and the people at the, at bringing up the rear with the last little, you know, police car flashing and protecting them. I am sincerely happy to cheer for every single one of those people. And I wish we had, and we, and you know, the other thing is, All of us that come out and cheer talk about how fun it is. It's like we can't even put into words why it is so fun and lovely and rewarding to just stand out there and cheer for people as they run by. And I just I love that we do it for not just the people at the front of the race, but throughout the whole route. And it feels so good. And I wish we could use that sort of mentality to let people run at their own pace for a lot of different things in American life. Well, and to just extract that bit that it feels really good to support people. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved that there were lots of questions out there this Mother's Day just about who's been really influential in your life Mm -hmm. and celebrating those people. Because what's the point of holidays if not to just prompt some reflection about people who are meaningful to you? I know this Mother's Day, for me, I spent a lot of time thinking about how differently I feel about being a mom than I did before the pandemic and how much the pandemic has changed my relationship with my kids. That reflection is useful. And it's lovely to think about not only my own kids, but some of the wonderful people who who call us internet moms here at Pansy Politics, some of the people in my life, especially women who have really guided me throughout my career, even the ones who've been straight up horrible to me, who gave me examples who I don't want to be, that kind of reflection is useful too. So I'm, I like that we took a more reflective tone overall. I'm sure it wasn't perfect. And I'm sure that there are people who attended church services or received emails or were in places that did not get this. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. but I do feel like we have the seed of something here that will grow and get better every single year. And and that makes me excited. Well, and, you know, if I'm giving truly the maximum amount of grace available to me right now, 
I think communities that get really defensive when we talk about the 4th of July or Thanksgiving or Mother's Day or any changes to those rituals are speaking to something important, which is what you just said. They do offer us a moment to reflect. And, you know, I think there is an undercurrent of protection to community events, protection to moments and times when we come together as a group, as opposed to just leaving everybody to their individual pursuits, that is worthwhile and that is worth protecting. And I think that the, you know, the path forward is to acknowledge that we can do that while honoring individual experiences. We can come together as a community and mark a moment in time, have that moment of self-reflection, be it celebration, be it mourning, but also, you know, honor everybody's individual experiences as a group. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out as Americans. And I'm just glad to see that we're making some progress when it comes to Mother's Day. I totally agree. We really need ritual and we really Mm -hmm. need tradition and we really need days on the calendar that we carve out to do something besides just work and like Mm -hmm. live a normal, productive life. I think we need more of that, not less of it. And so how can we get more of it uh, that opens the doors to people instead of making people feel hurt or excluded? That's such a worthwhile question. And I mean, thank goodness for people like Jenny's Ice Cream who are are asking it. Well, thank you all so much for being with us during our twice a week ritual of sitting down to process the news. We're so glad that you're here. We'll be back in your ears on Friday talking about vaccines throughout the world. We're going to hear from some of our international listeners. We're excited to share that with you. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, David McWilliams, Jared Minson, Emily Neasley, Danny Osmond, The Cousins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Karen True, Amy Whited, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.